Hello everyone, I'm Frank Garza with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the webcast. Today, we've collaborated with Rhapsody Venture Partners to bring you part one of a new mini-series focused on Lean Startup and the Hard Sciences. And moderating the discussion is our own Lean Startup Company faculty member, Hisham Ibrahim. Our guests are co-founder and CEO of Hazel Technologies, Aidan Moat, and managing partner at Rhapsody Venture Partners, Karsten Boers. And with that, I'll hand things off to Isham. Well, guys, thank you very much for joining us in today's uh, webcast. Um, I'm really excited because we're about to talk uh, about a field that um, we haven't talked about before, and especially in the in the context of of the lean startup. Um, uh, at least I haven't seen anything uh, written or said about. Uh, applying the mindset in, in uh, hard sciences. So um, I'm totally excited to be talking to you guys and to learn more about what you've been doing, what, what you're up to. Karsten, maybe you can start, it off, start us off with um, how do you guys know each other? What, what's your relationship? Great, great. Yeah, so uh, it's wonderful to be here and to talk about Hazel and, and the success. And indeed, as you just uh, alluded to, you know, to basically describe how both Hazel and, and Rhapsody as a fund have taken the lean startup model into this hard tech space. So we invest exclusively in hard tech science, so inventions that come out of scientific labs. And uh, Aiden, like many scientific founders, are true geniuses in, in their fields. And uh, you know, Aiden is a, is a great example of where just the raw IQ is, is incredibly impressive and, and you know, takes you away. And I, Aiden is obviously listening to this and, and laughing, but, uh, but he knows it's true. And so that's not uncommon, right? That uh, we encounter these scientific founders that are just, you know, uh, off the charts intelligent. And they've dedicated like, most of their career to science. And now they're stepping out into this entrepreneurial field uh, and are looking to build a business. And they're applying this, this intelligence to a new set of problems in a way. And we really try to be a partner in that. And, and so, you know, Ames and my relationship for a little bit more than a year and a half now has been really partners in this, in this adventure where we try to provide, you know, with less IQ, but more experience in the specific field of entrepreneurship, you know, a set of uh, pattern recognition and some advice. And, um, you know, different than most VCs, we really participate very actively in, in our portfolio companies. We're not just, you know, uh, kind of throwing in some advice uh, here and there, but we, you know, participate uh, very actively in, in strategy setting and even in the business development and marketing, and especially at the beginning with, with Hazel we did, so Aiden and I have done a lot of meetings together with, with uh, third parties, with, with uh, potential prospects, with potential corporate partners. And, uh, you know, over time, you really learn to play well uh, with each other. And then, you know, at the beginning, there's always a little bit uh, of, of getting to know each other. But so now at this point in time, I think we're kind of a well-oiled machine. And, uh, you know, you put us in a, in a room together and, and uh, we're, we're, we work really well off each other. Uh, so it's been it's always a really nice journey. Uh, and, and essentially also a journey of, of you know, becoming friends in the process and, and looking to make this, this baby, right, that we're both very invested in uh, successful. Wow, that's When awesome. you look at us, you know, on the webcast, you can basically tell we're twins. I mean, yeah. we wear the hair the same way. And, yeah. <laughs> Except he got all the IQ points, right? That's right. Yeah, I, I, give, him, I give him that. I would not uh, enter an IQ test uh, against him. Well, <laughs> Don't sell yourself short. Aiden, I think Carson set the bar pretty high now for uh, uh, for you. Um, 
So, Aiden, why don't we start with, how did you get started with, with Hazel? Well, um, in the third year of my PhD program, I became a fellow for a group called the Institute for Sustainability and Energy at Northwestern, um, Eisen. And uh, that group put me through kind of two sets of training that I really hadn't experienced as part of my PhD to that point. One was a, an overview of sustainability challenges in major world systems. So energy, of course, transportation, um, and then ultimately agriculture is what caught my eye. Um, and the second was actually they, they put me in an entrepreneurial accelerator program. Um, and that was actually where I got together with the other four original co-founders of Hazel. Uh, so we were all part of the same program in the same year. Uh, and myself and a colleague, Dr. Adam Pressler, uh, from the Northwestern Chemistry Program as well, uh, iterated the first version, the paper version of the technology that we then used as the, the nexus point for the development of a business idea around that. So it was a, a great year, 2016, 2015, sorry. It was a great year for that. Um, at the same time, the USDA had issued its first ever mandate that we have to cut food waste by 50% by the year 2030 to meet the world sustainability goals outlined in various accords. Um, so it was a, a great confluence of timing vis-a-vis -vis us developing a sustainability agricultural uh, waste reduction technology and, and sort of the public zeitgeist surrounding the concept and, and everything snowballed from there. It might be great context or background for us if you give us kind of the sh really short elevator pitch for what, what Hazel Tech is, what's the product? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, globally about one third of all produce harvested goes to waste and it's approximately a trillion dollars worldwide in waste. Uh, in the US alone, we lose about $86 billion every year to produce waste. It also wastes 6% of our energy, 24% of our water, uh, close to 300 million gallons of gasoline burned in excess and ejects about 300 million tons of CO2 equivalent into the atmosphere every year. This is just the waste alone. So the key driver in produce waste is spoilage, fruits and vegetables going bad before they can be eaten. And the stakeholders that we've identified as most vulnerable to store, uh, words, most vulnerable to spoilage are growers and packers of produce, folks that actually have a, a vested interest in the produce coming out of the ground, they pack it up and they sell it downstream to brokers and retailers and so forth. So to help them combat that, we've developed a, a technology platform that allows us to make products that can control the rate of aging and spoilage and produce. And the form factor for that product is what we like to call a sachet. So it's imagine like a sugar packet or a desiccant pouch that you might find in um, a, a bag of beef jerky or a, a box of shoes or what have you. Uh, it's about that size. And inside of that sachet is a solid material that we've engineered to be able to store and time release uh, active gases into the storage atmosphere of the produce. Those gases then interact with the produce biochemically to extend shelf life, either by slowing the aging process directly, uh, as in the case of our ethylene inhibition technology, or by fighting the proliferation of mold, spores, fungus, and yeast, uh, in the case of our antimicrobial technology. So one of those little sachets can be used in a commercially packed uh, case of anywhere up to about 40 or 50 pounds uh, of a wide variety of specialty crops. And by using it, our customers can extend the shelf life of their produce uh, by up to three times the conventional shelf life. 
Wow, that's awesome. So you're, you're, you were uh, initially kind of driven by this conviction of solving a big, important global, uh, global problem, um, you and your colleagues in the, in the PhD program. Um, and I guess that's where I'd like to pick up now is like now you're a group of scientists in a PhD program who've been through an accelerator program and you've decided you're going to get together and start a business. Where, where, how did you start? <laughs> well, it's, it's a challenging question. That's, uh, I think the, the early stages of any hard science company are, are perhaps the most mysterious because you sort of go from inception to prototype, but what you don't really get taught about in the meanwhile is all of the other steps you have to take in that process, intellectual property, uh, legal and regulatory requirements, and then of course the, the big elephant in the room, which is fundraising. Um, is always an interesting prospect for a company in a difficult space. So it was, um, we, had a, we had a pretty good support network. Uh, we came out of the university's ecosystem. There were a number of early introductions that were made to uh, mentors, investors, uh, early stakeholders. We actually came to RVP through uh, an organization called VentureWell, which is a, uh, a grant uh, generating an investment organization that focuses specifically on college and graduate school entrepreneurs. So they, they go out of their way to find um, scientific entrepreneurs coming out of the university ecosystem and they give them uh, some funding. So in total, we've achieved about $75,000 in funding from them alone. And of course, they ended up uh, furnishing the introduction to RVP and then that really um, set off even further stages of the business. RVP being Rhapsody Venture Partners. Yeah. Oh yeah, I apologize. Carson's firm, uh, Rhapsody Venture Partners. So that's that's um, you know one element of the story. Another element of it was we did receive some early grant money from uh, Northwestern and from other organizations. So Eisden was quite generous in funding us as well. It enabled us to take advantage of another key component of the the small hard tech startup ecosystem, which is the availability of micro labs. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly rare business model and, and it's really kind of a choke point for a lot of companies, but we were able to secure um, essentially the bare minimum of laboratory space that we needed. Um, if you're reading in between the lines, what that means is affordable. We didn't have to build a facility. And that enabled us to do all of our product development uh, and early MVP generation you know, away from the university so we could maintain our own intellectual property without having to engender an early $500,000 facility building cost and timeline. So that was pretty important as well, um, having access to that kind of micro lab, uh, hard science incubator type system. We started off at the Illinois Science and Technology Park with a group called the Technology Innovation Center, the TIC. Um, and now we're actually located at the University Technology Park uh, in IIT uh, on the south side of Chicago, which is a similar uh, group. We operate about 8,000 square feet of lab space here. So that was really, and then of course the USDA funded us as well. So we won an SBIR grant, um, a couple of competitions, which gave us a good PR profile. Um, so between the USDA backing, the, um, the limited amount of PR we generated and the availability of these very low cost university ecosystem resources, we were able to parlay that into the early customer traction that we received. And I think that's ultimately what attracted the attention of Karsten and his partners once we got to that seed financing stage, then you know things really started to accelerate as a business because then we had the resources to go out and, and really uh, service the, the early list of customers and pilot partners and so forth. And, and of course, once you get to that level of traction, then the Series A happens and everything builds from there. 
So that's, I think that's a, a pretty brief depiction of what the early years looked like. Dane, can you speak a little bit more about that? You know, this is so striking, you know, for us. You, you guys were a group of scientific founders and, and we often write, uh, start right there. And often the scientific founders have a hesitation to speak to customers and do sales. Maybe they have some conversations, but to really, you know, try to find out where the, what the value of the product is in the market is often for, for scientists an uncomfortable conversation because they haven't been in that situation. And you guys really embraced that and went out and tried to, try to sell pilots at the beginning. Uh, how did you guys get there? How did you get to that kind of comfort, comfort place where you said, yeah, we're salespeople now because we're entrepreneurs. That was really striking to us. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, so there's an interesting question there. And I think there's really three components to it. Um, you know, one is somewhat philosophical to be completely honest. I'll spend the least amount of time talking about that. But um, sort of driven by my philosophy of engineering and science, uh, which uh, I, I was just thinking about this, I think this is kind of fun. I don't know if you're familiar with the poet William Carlos Williams, but he's very famous for a poem called Patterson. And in Patterson, he espoused uh, an idea that, that, that basically said, no ideas but in things, which I think is a very interesting engineering philosophy because it implies that you can create all kinds of theoretical constructs and reasons for having a product, but at the end of the day, if you're manufacturing something that is an actual hard science product, a tangible item, um, that that ultimately is what has to drive your success. And so in order for that to mean anything, it has to be applied. It has to be out there in the world. It has to be given to somebody. Somebody has to perceive value in it. Um, and that I think is the essence of value creation in a startup. So that's, I'll, I'll get off the philosophical kick now. Um, that was one part of it. Uh, another part of it is that we deliberately chose to attack the uh, market that we were looking at with the lowest tech solution we could possibly come up with. So we already had it in our heads that our core technology was going to be a, chem a biochemical technology because that's what we were experts in and that's what we could apply our core strengths to. And simultaneously, we needed the cheapest, highest throughput, most effective, most sustainable version of that technology, which says fewest inputs, least engineering, least complexity because agriculture, while it is a logistically complex business, uh, at the end of the day still revolves around a largely untrained workforce pulling roots and fret and vegetables and fruits off of, out of the ground and off the trees. So it's a very basic industry in some ways. So to approach it, you have to have a solution that is immediately scalable. I mean, even the earliest pilots we were doing were still on the orders of, of tens of thousands of pounds of produce. You can't do it on any smaller scale. Um, so you had to have something that you could plug in immediately. And so we, we deliberately looked for a solution that we could bridge the gap from idea to customer application as quickly as possible. Um, and then lastly, being a clean tech entrepreneur, and I use clean tech as a general umbrella that incorporates the ag tech um, subsection, we learned that it's extremely difficult to gain investment traction. Um, now you could argue that in 2015, that was a particular problem because uh, some funds had come out, but nobody had any good exits. And a lot of people got burned on the clean tech bubble just a few years prior. So you can say that VCs were a bit skittish, but here you had five people coming out of Northwestern who had never started a company before, uh, who had a technology that had not been vetted by any particular professor. It wasn't as though there was a university architecture behind the product. Uh, who had no experience in fundraising or, or in agricultural technologies in general. I mean, we weren't really agriculturalists at the time. So it's understandable how that would cause some skittishness among the investor groups. And in order to survive, quite frankly, uh, you know, looking at the math of how much money do we get from early grants and, and angel investments versus how much runway does it buy us, 
uh, we realized we were going to have to create that investor confidence as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of diligence with a lot of VCs early in the process, probably earlier than we should have. And it was very frustrating because we would always get to this point where uh, we check off every box. They would say, well, your team's great. Your product's great. Your mar product market fit looks awesome. Your unit economics are solid. You know, you've got great uh, analytical technology and engineering acumen that says that this is going to work just fine. Um, and when they come to that business model checkbox, they could never check it off because they didn't know anything about the market. They didn't know anything about us. And we didn't, we hadn't sold any product. So when we read that writing on the wall, we said, okay, the, the one thing that'll bridge this gap to investor confidence is getting the product in the hands of customers and showing the early signs of customer delight. And so we knew that that was the mission we had to fill. Uh, and so we, we, that was the imperative and everything we did was focused on getting it into the customer's hands. Now this is, uh, well, you got me excited now, uh, Aiden, because <laughs> um, this, is, this is when the rubber meets the road. So you, you came to that realization, that was the missing link. Um, now you have this daunting task of going out, talking to customers um, uh, with a product that is maybe not fully developed yet, definitely not proven in the market yet, and yet you have to go and convince pilot customers who are skeptical, who are conservative, to take the risk. Mm -hmm. How did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> there, was a lot of, there was a lot of no's before there was one yes. Mm. Um, you know, we're big believers in the, in the adoption curve, right? So if you look at the conventional logic behind a customer adoption curve, you can really only expect about 5% of the market to be bleeding edge adopters. And that's been proven in many different industries. Yeah. So we know that 95% of the market one way or the other are followers. And I think the, the biggest challenge there is that for an entrepreneur engaged in sales, the first sale you make is a unique point in time because prior to that, you've only heard the word no. And if you follow the adoption curve logic, what that says is, in a hundred customers, if you go out and put a hundred customers through your, your pipeline, you're only going to get five yeses and 95 no's. That's the only industry in which that could possibly be true. I mean, that's, that's an incredible statistic if you actually think about it, because how do you maintain confidence in your company and your product when you, you hear 50 no's in a row, but you're aware that it only takes one yes, and you should only expect to hear yes 5% of the time? That's a very interesting question, right? So we, we kept that philosophy in mind. We, um, we had a very aggressive policy of whenever we talked to any customer and we didn't get any traction from it, we would immediately turn around and say, well, why is that? What, what could we do better? What turned you off of this? Um, and you'd be surprised how willing a, a given customer is to talk about that particular concept. Uh, so that helped us a lot because we could refine our customer vision and we knew that nobody was saying, we don't need this product. Nobody was saying, um, this doesn't seem like something that would add value to a business. We heard people talk about price. We heard people talk about, well, you know, there's not enough validation behind it. Those are, those are frustrating answers to get because you go, well, we're a startup. We don't have access to economies of scale. And certainly when we don't have any customers, we can't get customer validation. <laughs> Chicken and egg, you know. But um, when you're not hearing things like, I don't see how this product could possibly help my business, you know that you're, you just haven't talked to the right person yet. So you keep looking for that right person. Um, so that was one of our various strategies. Another strategy, which was much more technical, is that uh, one of our co-founders, Pat Flynn, is quite adept at cold outreach. 
Um, and it, admittedly, I will say that this is an industry that um, is used to cold outreach. They're used to being approached by technology providers and having technology providers perform demonstrations. So it's a, a very accepted channel for any given provider to, to shoot an email or give a phone call to an operations manager and say, hey, we got this thing. We want to test it out. Is that cool by you? These guys do this a dozen times a year for sure. So the real question there is, can you find the right person? And that's a matter of doing prospecting the correct way, which is a very, you know, a grind type of thing where you're just putting information into your funnel and you're turning a crank and you're seeing what comes out the other end. And, uh, you know, can you phrase the question correctly such that the, the customer you're addressing understands the nature of testing a new technology? That's a very nitty gritty side of things. But ultimately we used those strategies and they came out successfully insofar as we were able to get on site uh, at uh, the early days, it was probably five or six pilots in total. Uh, and the, there was no real promise of economic return. We were interfacing with uh, R&D specialists within those companies. We were interfacing with operations guys, but they were letting us into their spaces. They were letting us um, take some of their produce without having to pay for it. And these can be substantially large tests. I mean, you could be talking about 2,000 pounds, 3,000 pounds at a time. Um, and they would let us apply the technology and come back and measure what we wanted to measure, or they would help us measure it. When you get that kind of involvement, then you know you have a customer that's interested because they're actually dedicating man hours and man hours are time. Um, so we, we also, I guess the, the final point that I want to make there is that we didn't go out of our way to force our customers to pay us uh, as the first step in the process. What we wanted was our customers to trust us because no, I, you know, making a thousand bucks off a customer wasn't going to do me any good. But being able to have one good testimony to go to somebody like Karsten and get $800,000 was exactly what we needed at the time as a business. So you can find ways to make the value proposition align. Just yeah, to come I'd say that uh, them investing time and produce uh, is an investment. Uh, it's, not, it's not money, but it's, well, it is money at the end of the day. It's money. They're investing their staff time. Uh, Karsten, you were going to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to kind of point to a couple of additional points that I think are, are interesting uh, kind of to cover in this, you know, it, it's obviously, it's, it's so obvious, right, that, you know, if you develop a mobile app, you're going to be able to go around and show it to your friends and say, hey, can you download this and try it out and give me some feedback, you know, the threshold in this hard science area and, and including for the Hazel technology for a customer to pilot this and try it out is so much higher. And indeed, right, you know, we, we're talking about it as if it's like, you know, a product that is done. The product wasn't done, right? The product also needed iterations with the customers mm -hmm. and, and integration into a fairly complex value chain. You know, uh, how much do you insert at what point in time uh, and what results do you really look for? How do you measure the results? All of those questions are very complex in reality. And so one of the critical pieces here, and we, we sometimes see that go wrong, you know, you can't delegate this first sale uh, and, and, and uh, Hazel's team didn't, you know, Aiden, Adam, the whole founder team, they were out on the road. And I think it's, it's critical that the scientific founder is out there speaking with this prospective client on the level of, hey, we want to partner on this and we want to get it right. Because you can't promise them that on the first iteration, you're going to give them this thing and everything is going to work out hunger-dory. You have to evangelize for here's the future potential. We can do something really big with each other. And here's how we're going to start and how we're going to figure it out. And, you know, and then it's still a lot of notes, but those partnerships then become something meaningful. Um, and, and, you know, just to insert for, for Rhapsody, 
we were lucky to, I guess, encounter Hazel at the right time and to join the customer calls. I mean, the, the most important thing we did in the diligence was we went out and, and prospected with them and we could see, hey, no sale has been done yet, but we're in this process that Aiden is describing. There's gonna be yeses here because we can see how this is compelling to the customer. And even if there hasn't been a customer yet, this is gonna find its market. Uh, and, and that's what you have to do in this, in this game. Right. Um, now, in, after the first few uh, partnerships, these, these early pilots, what was the moment or when, uh, when did you feel like now you can go and get a paid customer? Now you can go sell this to even, it might still be a form of a pilot, mm. but they're going to pay. We, um, so th th that question feeds into sort of a broader scenario, which really what you're asking about is, you know, what does a sales cycle look like in your particular business? Because if you think about it, the notion of a sales cycle is the same as acquiring that first pilot customer. It's always, there's first contact, then there's, you know, the courtship period, there's the, the demonstration of validation or value, and then ultimately there's closing an actual sale, right? So we, we now reproduce this cycle pretty reliably across, you know, a much broader range of, of customers and partners. Um, it is a, I think it's a critical point. It, it tests your skills as a negotiator, certainly, but also as, as somebody who um, understands value creation in other business. For us, it was successful pilot result tests um, early in the process led to immediate requests for purchase. We actually got, one of the reasons why we, we, we put the gas so hard on getting our seed raise in was um, within about a month of the first initial pilots, the customer said, oh, this, this works perfectly. We're going to need, I don't know, 100,000 of these uh, in a couple of months. And we said, oh, we don't even have a reactor big enough to do that. We don't, we're not set up for that yet. We were sealing these sachets by hand, you know, one by one at the time. You know, I that was personally made about 2,000 or 3,000 sachets, which doesn't touch anything. I mean, we're sell we, you know, we move units by the 100,000 now. Um, so that was an interesting scenario, but that's, that, that was sort of what gave us the, the realistic expectation for when in the sales cycle is an appropriate time to ask for money. Uh, we, I, I'm a big fan of the experimental concept of business. So I was taught in, my, a lot of my accelerator programs to consider a business as an experiment and you're always hypothesis testing. You're, you're generating hypotheses and then you're testing them and you either accept or reject the hypothesis based on the extant evidence that you can find. Mm -hmm. The best scenario for figuring out what a sales cycle should look like is if you can take your hands off the wheel for a minute, let the customer drive the conversation and see at what point is a natural point for them to say, we've seen the value, we're now going to purchase this product. And mm -hmm. we're lucky enough in the early stages that we had such stellar results from this particular technology. I mean, it, it does help us that nobody else is out there in the industry doing anything similar to what we're doing right now. Uh, so having those stellar early results, the customers immediately said, okay, we've seen it works. Now we're going to buy it. And we're going to deploy it. And then we knew in the future that, okay, if we can hold a customer's hand through that pilot process and get them to the point where they're seeing positive results, then that should result in a sale. And today, that is essentially how we manage our sales cycle is we'll, we'll very often still conduct um, initial small pilots. They can sometimes be free of charge if they're small enough. Sometimes they're, you know, maybe a couple thousand dollars. It's not going to break the, anybody's bank. Uh, we put a lot of effort and focus into ensuring that that customer sees the results they want to see under their commercially relevant conditions. 
And then once we close out that pilot study, we'll, we'll very often just send them a final report and say, this is what we did. It's now time to talk about contract. And there can be sticky situations in there. We've definitely had customers come back and not fully understand what, they, what it is that they wanted. So they would see results. They wouldn't know how to interpret them. They would ask to repeat results multiple times in a row. But as I said before, once you get that kind of personal investment, you begin to realize that the customer is deeply in, interested in the product. And so sometimes we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll drop the hammer on that from the same perspective. And we'll say, look, we, we want to continue working with you, but you guys have already seen good results. We're going to need a PO from you in order to continue this relationship. And again, nine times out of 10, I would say that that's a very successful tactic. So I think it comes down to knowing your own sales cycle in great detail. And, and as Karsten mentioned earlier, one of the one of the things that we did early in this process was to get the whole team involved in these sales processes so that we could see firsthand, this is when the customer gets comfortable enough with the product to want to buy it. So we know what that feels like now. And that, that created the tapestry that we weave today. So uh, I would say that, that, that that's how we figured it out. Great. Um, now before we, I, I wanna talk about hypotheses and experiments and, and what you tested, but before going there, I want to touch on something real, real quick to see if it was relevant in your case. Is a, a, a lot of times I see it very early on um, with customers that maybe don't have so much skin in the game. Mm -hmm. They might lead you astray with their with their feedback. Did that play at all into your early engagements with with customers? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think it's true of practically any segment of the entire business world. I mean, you, you could say the same thing about VCs. You could say the same thing about uh, technology partners. You could say the same thing about distributors um, and logistics companies and so forth. It, it's always true that a lot of people will say things. Uh, nobody wants to, no, nobody thinks they're going to do business with somebody and says, um, hey, everything you're doing is crap. Uh, we don't like it. We're not going to be able to work with it, but come back tomorrow. We'll see what happens. Nobody does that, right? Everybody puts a smile on their face and says, this is, we think this is, has a place. We think we're seeing good stuff. We're going to, you know, I'm going to pass this up to the CFO. We're going to see what happens. Did, did that happen? And then customers came back and or ghosted us or, or did whatever. Absolutely. It happens. We, uh, we put them into our sales force as revisit later. Now, we don't throw them away uh, because at some point they'll wise up and they'll want to use the technology. A thing that's specific to agriculture that probably doesn't necessarily apply to other technologies is people's needs change. Uh, seasonally, your pressures are different, disease pressures are different, you get different rainfall, you get different temperatures, different yields. And one year, the, there might be a huge shortage of South African Hass avocados and Mexican sales go through the roof. The next year, Peru comes online and gluts the market. And now all the prices are depressed and everybody has to hold their stuff. Is the customer's demand for the product the same in both of those years? No, not at all. They might test in a year where they have no need of it whatsoever, and then the next year we'll suddenly get a PO with no further discussion where they'll go, well, we got to do something and we know your stuff works, so here we go. So I view it as um, what's referred to in statistical theory as a random walk with an upwards trend. Uh, you can't guarantee that any given customer will purchase your product outright. You, you can have some statistical percentage of success, but you can't guarantee it's going to happen. But what you look for is if we go out and we touch enough customers, will enough of them buy at some time point that our trend line continues to rise over a given time frame? I think in, um, in like Carson was mentioning app-based businesses, we've gotten very used to a very compressed timeline. You know, you, you look at app eyeballs in the context of a month or three months, you know, a quarter maybe. 
But in agriculture, it's years. I've seen uh, post-harvest agricultural studies done that are seven years long. Talk about a long sales cycle. So you have to have uh, a business model robust enough to survive those kinds of swings, but it's still just a, a process of, um, it's still just a process of, uh, of iterations over time and, and gaining more customers over time. I think one, one extension of, of the question that you asked, Hisham, uh, you know, in terms of can the customers mislead you and, and how do you protect against it, was sometimes at the very beginning in terms of the product requirements, right? We had several instances where the pilots didn't work out perfectly, not on account that our product wasn't working well, but that the customer hasn't, hadn't shared well enough what their actual requirements were and how they were processing stuff. And so we had one instance, for example, where we were keeping avocados shelf life extension our shelf life extension that we were we were reaching was too long uh, for what they actually needed uh, and and so they were kind of cagey about coming up with that information at the beginning and that was an interesting kind of case study of the customer is sometimes their, their own worst enemy because they want to protect proprietary information they don't feel they have the trusted relationship with you yet and then they make they make the product fail um, uh, and so to break through that again it, it's all about the key leaders in the company to be out there helping solve that problem. And, and, and the team did that. Does that sound right to you in the way I'm describing it? I would have to agree completely. I, I wasn't really going to get into that with that particular question, but it is also true that, you know, I think with, I think this is true of any tech provider, you know, you're selling a complex technology. I told you we sell a sachet you put into a box, right? But at the end of the day, that doesn't address, for example, the specific logistical needs of a given cultivar of a crop type and whether they're different in say Florida than the Dominican Republic. Those are two different things. So the customer has to work with you to decide what the best use case, even for a very simple technology is. Uh, and, and Carson's completely right. We've definitely seen circumstances where the customer will, they'll see a result. They won't have put enough effort into thinking about that process. They will, be, they will continue to be interested on some operational level but they'll fail to translate that interest in their own hierarchy into purchasing, you know, with somebody who has a, a wallet that they can actually make that kind of uh, purchase. So we, a lot of times we end up, uh, end up having to untangle threads that the customer ties themselves, uh, particularly when they won't let you into their business. You can't, I can't tell you what to do if I don't know what you're doing essentially. So Carson's completely correct on that one. Mm -hmm. Now I want to talk about the product development and the, and the business the, the design of the business uh, model. Because um, like you said, the approach is experiments. Everything is an experiment. Um, uh, hypothesis driven, you test it's either accepted or, or rejected. Um, now you guys could very easily have at the very beginning as a group of expert scientists sat in those micro labs uh, that, that you got access to with some of the early investments that you got in the grant money and sat there and just completely developed your technology and completely developed your, your business model. And maybe did some very, very low scale uh, testing. And then you probably would have gone out to the market and it would have flopped after you spent all the money and spent all the time. Um, so talk to me a little bit about in these early pilots and the initial customers, What's any, what are a couple or three examples of really fundamental hypotheses or assumptions that you had mm -hmm. that you structured those engagements to measure and test 
um, and maybe give an example of one or two r really fundamental ones that proved out, mm -hmm. and maybe at least one that didn't, that would have caused possibly the early death of, of, of Hazel. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an easy one to think of. I can, I can name that one for sure. So we, um, initially, we were interested in uh, the retail and distribution space. And the reason for that is that uh, there is the, the most nominal waste in the supply chain occurs at the consumer level um, and things that directly touch the consumer level. So retail chains, in order to sell produce to customers, uh, have to break traditional post-harvest practices. You can't have a, a grocery store that's at 34 degrees Fahrenheit, for example. It would be a, a very difficult scenario to get customers to actually come in the door. Uh, and so as a result, they have higher proportions of waste and higher margins on their produce. The retail shelf is where all of the money comes in. So the bulk sellers get proportionally less. So initially we looked at the market from an analysis standpoint, from an economic analysis standpoint, we said, okay, well, clearly growers and packers don't have as many resources to spend on these kinds of technologies as retailers and distributors do. So we're going to go where the money is and we're going to plug our product into those supply chains. Well, we spent, uh, I'd say about three months chasing those guys down, performing some tests in their spaces, and it, it led to absolutely nothing. I mean, you know, to state the hypothesis as obviously as possible, our direct hypothesis was that because retailers and distributors ha access higher margins and have more spend, and because they have a higher threshold of waste, therefore they will be the party most interested in deploying uh, a technology that, that can be easily incorporated into packaging and give shelf life extension for their customers. And that ended up being a resounding no. There's really three reasons, four reasons there. Um, one is that uh, distributors and retailers, the idea of shelf life extension is actually antithetical to the entire way they run their businesses. Uh, a, a retailer and a distributor, they manage produce shelf life with quick turnaround. They don't want things to stay on site long enough to have shelf life extensions. Most people have a 48 to 72 hour mantra. They want everything out the door within two to three days. That doesn't actually work, and they'll tell you that that is what they're doing, but that's not true, but that's the mindset that they have. Uh, another reason is distributors and retailers don't like having to put extra spend on packing labor. So whereas a grower and a packer um, is already packaging produce and therefore they have a packing spend, most retailers and distributors are limiting the amount of time and effort that they spend on any kind of, of workforce whatsoever. So they don't like the idea of having to put Sachet. We, I mean, they wouldn't even like to do bulk treatments because they don't want to have their employees, you know, some 17-year-old they hired out of high school in the back room doing that kind of thing. So we, uh, that could have been disastrous had we decided, you know, in the, in the face of contrary evidence, if we decided to continue to pursue that market, we spent three months getting no traction whatsoever. And then immediately uh, after we decided to shift our focus towards the grower packer side and we started going afield into California and Florida and Pacific Northwest, that, I mean, within the same time frame, we already had active customers. So that was a very clear example of where we needed to reject the hypothesis uh, and, uh, and make a pivot uh, into a new market space. It worked perfectly for us. That could have been, had we not done that, we would not have gotten our seed funding. And had we not gotten our seed funding, I don't know what would have happened in 2016. Mm. Uh, I won't say we would have failed, but it's, it, it's difficult to understand what would have happened. Uh, you know, the funny thing about asking a question about what's a successful hypothesis is you tend to forget your successful hypothesis, right? So if we test it, that's just part of our business. <laughs> so all of our business is a successful hypothesis. I, we, we liked, um, I like bold hypotheses. I think one of the, the issues that you see with hard science entrepreneurs is kind of exactly what you were alluding to, which is 
you know, you can sit on your haunches and test the death. And, and this is the tendency of any PhD is they say, I want to study every element of the system. I want every knob, every, I want it all to be explained. The thing is, as a PhD chemist, I'm fully aware that there are very few systems in the world that are fully explained. So people have been working on, I, I won't go get too esoteric with it, but people have been working on things for 50 years and it's still not fully understood all of the elements that go into it. So my training was in quality control and process engineering. And I've always believed that you don't let perfect be the enemy of good enough. And so we were not looking for every element of the system. We were looking for the one final checkpoint that enabled us to achieve commercially relevant results. And then we can go back and iterate and refine with more data. But to get the data up front is you're talking a process of 10 years and $5 million. We can't do that as a startup. I'll throw an example in there, uh, in if you allow, you know, I think the way you guys handled pricing was really striking to us, you know, because you can do so much theoretical work on trying to capture how much value are we creating and how much of that value can we charge for and what's the mechanism that we're charging uh, through and, and so you're forever kind of turning uh, and spinning cycles in the business model and uh, Aiden and the team really went out, you know, with, they did some of that analysis, but then very quickly just translated into pricing conversations and negotiations with customers. And so very, very quickly in that process, in the real world, not in a theoretical world, they were able to calibrate and say, this is the price that people are willing to pay, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because this is how their value chain looks. This is how they look at the world uh, in terms of cost. And uh, we have plenty of margin in it. And so that's how, how the price was set. And, and so I think with a very pragmatic, hypothesis and, and real world uh, interaction we, we got to uh, get home. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good example because that is a hypothesis refinement process. So it started with us looking at similar market technologies uh, and saying, okay, you know, if we find a normalizing factor, so we always thought of it as the price of the technology per pound of produce treated, uh, you find that there's a, a discrete window of prices that customers are used to paying for these kinds of technologies. So we said, okay, you know, we want to be within that window. And we said, naturally, we also want to access the highest price point within that window that we possibly can, because we want to maximize margin and maximize our economic gain. And so then the hypothesis became, okay, within this window of, of discrete prices we've determined from research, can we go to a customer in a particular category and charge the premium price, the highest premium price? Can we go in and get, uh, you know, give ourselves enough negotiating leverage underneath that to be able to price out for bulk and still maintain our marginality and so forth. Um, and then we would go out and we would do that and we would find out where their price allergies lie. And of course, the customers are, are actively negotiating to drive prices down. So it's difficult to keep grasp on, this, on the, the economic nature, the theoretical economic nature of your argument, but you know that's how the market works. Uh, and so that process iteratively occurred. And, and what's fascinating is now um, that resulted in a pricing model that we, we really still use today and still services our needs quite well. And it turns out that our pricing model across a wide variety of categories is actually very, very similar to a pricing model that was developed by a team of economic researchers at one of the major post-harvest companies that's out there. So they have this dynamic pricing structure that they use in their market. Um, and we inadvertently created the same thing within a few months just by looking at direct hypothesis testing. It cost us a lot less money to develop that model uh, than I think it did our competitors. So that, I think that speaks to the effectiveness of the, the iterative hypothesis testing scenario. Mm -hmm. Now, whenever we do hypothesis testing, we do measurements. Um, in, in Lean Startup, we talk about, we have this term innovation accounting, which is a fancy term 
um, that is essentially referring to what metrics to use to the product and, and the business mm -hmm. and specifically highlighting the, the, the differences between what a early startup um, should be measuring and, and tracking versus what a mature business uh, should be in a, a pitfall that many startup founders um, fall into using the wrong metrics um, uh, that are more relevant to a mature product or a mature, uh, a mature business. Um, so can you give us an idea of, kind of when you started, what were the kinds of leading indicators that you were measuring and how are the, and, and, uh, and what's different about what you're measuring now? Yeah, so, well, by the end of my answer, you're going to find out that my answer is that you just gave the answer to the question that you asked, but we'll, let's go through the process, shall we? Um, so it's, this, is a, this is a truism. This is a thing that's true, is if you have no customers and you get one customer, your growth is infinite. <laughs> there you go. If you have one customer and you get two customers, your growth is 100%. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the early and discrete stages of a business look very, very different than any other stage of the business because you have no ability to aggregate data. You only have quantized successes. So I would argue that um, first and foremost, the real answer to your question lies first in milestone creation and an understanding of what those milestones are towards value creation. So admittedly, this is more true of a, of a VC-backed business than like a, a cash flow type business because only in VC businesses can you create for yourself a valuation that is discrete from your actual cash flow, right? In, in the majority of these businesses, it's an asset tally and you might have an accounting category for some goodwill, but at the end of the day, a lot of those valuations are based solely off of the asset and cash flow of a particular industry. So in a venture-backed business, however, you have to be able to create milestones that not only are applicable to your company, but are applicable to the folks that are creating those valuations. So VCs, stakeholders, and so forth, and, and ultimately potential acquirers. So um, picking, you know, picking SMART, and I use SMART, the acronym, specific, measurable, uh, I forget what A is, because A in SMART, uh, realistic, time-based. Um, those are, uh, those are really important concepts to the business, because I think a lot of people will say stuff like, oh, you know, our milestone is to hire a CEO, and you go, well, okay, now what? That that you hired a CEO, maybe you've attached a name to your price tag, but that was a stepping stone in a larger value creation step that had nothing to do with a milestone. <coughs> or a lot of people will say, well, look, we developed an MVP. Now that's a very meaningful milestone if you didn't have a functioning product before, but if your version of an MVP is we refined a working product, then you actually haven't done anything because you haven't gone out there and sold it. You haven't gone out there and gotten customer validation of it. You've just taken something that already existed and created a new iteration of it. So being very, very careful and very uh, accurate with how you define the milestones of value creation for your company is how you pick, uh, <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> it's how you pick those intermediate value steps uh, before you get to anything that looks like a, a conventional business. So it's things like, um, things that would correlate quite well, for example, with a VC checklist for a next fundraise. It's have you filed your intellectual property? Uh, have you obtained the appropriate permitting to do 
uh, business and dispensation? Have you gotten validated customer uh, responses to the deployment of your product? You know, have you um, done third-party lab testing, for example? Have you, have you done validation and third-party testing through other means? So forth and so on. It's very discrete steps that, and in my opinion, the unifying factor is they almost universally interface with the outside world. I'm not aware of many milestones that are valuable that are entirely internal concepts. It's almost mm -hmm. always, we did this and managed to put it out in the world, whether it's a, a use label or a registration or a patent or a sale or whatever it is. And then that's very, very meaningful. Everything else is just sort of back padding and people say, oh, well, that looks good and the optics are good. But if you were to break that down on a term sheet, it's not going to raise your valuation. So that's what I would say in the very early stages is you have these discrete quantized milestones and they are, for, they are outward facing milestones that you can uh, cite as value points for anybody that's coming to your business to say, what have you actually achieved? Now, at some point, <laughs> you hit enough milestones that begins, the business begins to look continuous. It becomes a continuous function. And you had some amount of revenues the year before, and you have some amount of revenues this year, and you'll have some amount of revenues the next year. And when you begin to aggregate those data, then you start to be able to perform more conventional analysis on your strategies. Then you can start to say things like, oh, we had a, a you know, we saw a 50% growth in sales pipeline from 2017 to 2018. And we saw a concomitant 20% increase in revenue from 27 to 2018. If that factor remains constant over the next few years, here's how we're going to project our year-over-year -year growth. And we're going to see what that, how that measures up to what we do. Um, so I'm a big fan of what's called semi-empirical modeling. It's something that, I, that is, uh, I suppose, a remnant of my, uh, my chemical training, my scientific training. Is A model is always best the more material inputs it has, because you're not trying to predict something theoretical. You're trying to figure out a trend based on early data points. So once you get enough trend data, then you can perform any conventional analysis you want. But I think the struggle is, and this goes back to what you had said, the struggle is an early stage business does not look like any other stage of business. You can't, have an, you can't drop an MBA into it and say, analyze this company's financials. It won't work. It doesn't make any sense. So that's, that's what I would say is they're not the same. And those are the reasons why. You answered that beautifully. I think I, I think one aspect that's so interesting to listen to Aiden on this is you know it, it, it's so um, you know natural to him how he's talking about it that he he didn't he didn't make the point that there's a lot of signaling that typically goes on in the startups that's very noisy vis-a-vis -vis those outside signals right and Aiden and the team and and you know in, in tandem with us we always defined our milestones as you know what are actual success metrics rather than you know. A big bahoo that we can make uh, about things. So there's no smoke and mirrors in the signals that, that we put up, but you know what's actual traction, what's actually meaningful to us. And even if you have to look a little bit more in a more sophisticated manner, what the actual client engagement is, you know that was more meaningful to us than having hitting milestones that are there more nebulous, uh, but maybe look better. Well, those those are the true leading indicators. Yeah, um, yeah, I would agree completely. Now, Aiden, I'm, I'm, I'm about to ask you what might be a, a, a tough question, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, what, what's your best estimate for how much time and money you saved by partnering early on with the, with the 5% early adopters? Well, uh, fascinatingly enough, there's actually a brand new market data point that we can use for comparison here. So <clears throat> I, won't, I won't name names, but I'm quite certain that it's pretty easy for you to figure out what that is. Um, 
the next closest business model that we've seen that's out there right now um, just completed a new raise. And this raise was a $70 million one. So that brings their total capital raise to $110 million in four years, I think, four or five years. So we are, uh, I'm not going to say we're ahead in terms of traction, but I would say that our market traction is at least comparable uh, at this point in time. And we've raised $4.25 million in three years. So I guess we've saved approximately $100 million in the same time frame by uh, approaching this from a lean concept uh, and managed to achieve what I would have to say is probably the same scale of business um, at the same time. Now, in terms of time savings, I mean, I would think of that as more of like a product development concept. I will say that we took a product from uh, not existing at all to complete field, uh, like out in the actual field in the space of about six months. Uh, that is faster than an, a standard production timeline or a standard optimization timeline, probably by at least a year and a half, if not as much as five to seven years. For the type of material that we're working with, um, I would say that uh, companies that develop similar materials typically have project timelines on the order between one and a half years for the basic science all the way out to five to six years. Now, you can make some arguments because there's like patents in there and there's like regulatory stuff and so forth, but um, at the end of the day, a basic science team will generally have their hands on a technology for uh, one to two years at least uh, while they're developing it before they hand it off to the next stage of refinement. So I would say we saved ourselves at least a couple of years for sure. Um, and the, the capital difference is quite striking. And the lean model requires so much less capital. Uh, now, I should also point out though that in that capital structure, that's also a massive time saver because for example, if we had to restrict ourselves from market access because we couldn't scale appropriately because we had to continue building milestone value in order to access larger capital raises. I mean, that would have set us back. I don't even know how long uh, that, that that's not even a time frame I can even, you know, entertain because that would just be putting us on an entirely different trajectory. So the success of Hazel today is predicated entirely <clears throat> on being able to operate within the capital pool that we can access quickly and efficiently with high value partners. Uh, and to do it any other way, it would just not be the same business. We wouldn't be able to do it. Say a little bit more about this because the kind of the the, the position, at least at least from a Silicon Valley perspective, when you hear about a hot startup that achieved some uh, some early traction with with customers, and they get this round of fifty million, seventy million, and they go and they scale their teams and they scale their marketing, they scale and you're not doing that. You're keeping your burn rate pretty low. Why? <laughs> well, uh, there's a lot of factors there. Um, but at the end of the day, what it comes down to is agriculture is a slow business. And I think there's a couple of strategies there. One is that I've heard from a number of VCs over the years is, you know, they're, they're always asking the question, okay, well, is this an opportunity where let's say you're raising $5 million. If we put $50 million into it, does that mean we could grow 10 times as fast? And the answer to that in agriculture is nope, categorically, almost never. I'm not aware of how you could do that unless you are really only operating on sort of a cloud type technology. And the reason for it is 
you have to build and you have to test and you have to register and you have to file intellectual property and you have to go through a very slow sales customer acquisition cycle. So if you have a choice between I'm going to front load my company right now and require my company to develop fast sales within two years, or I'm going to build my burn rate commensurate with the rate of my revenue build, then I would always take the second choice in agriculture because otherwise you're going to end up in a scenario where you're going to run out of capital long before you've made any sales, even in the best case scenario. Uh, and then you're going to find yourself in a situation where you have to continue to, to raise money in order to finance your business. So I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. I'm saying that in this particular case, with the tools that we had in the market as we understand it and the economic scenario we wanted to create for ourselves, uh, the only strategy that made any sense was why don't we be conservative on our spend until we can go nuts with it, until all of those different pieces are in place, until we have all the different pilot customers and the traction and the PR and all of our registrations all across the different countries we want to be in and so forth and so on. Why don't we build towards that moment and then that is the exact right moment uh, to go out over the top. So I'm not saying there isn't a, you know, $100 million of capital raising in Hazel's future. It's, it's possible that, that may need to be done in order to achieve massive global scale on a rapid basis. But I'm saying that we weren't going to do that until we're ready uh, from the standpoint of the requirements of the market. And uh, our job as entrepreneurs is to exercise the appropriate amount of foresight and patience uh, to understand when is the right time to strike big. So that's, that's, that's where we are today. Very, very smart. Um, not falling into the trap of premature, premature scaling. Um, uh, Karsten, I wanted to ask you. Tom, if, if you allow, if I can just add a, a point to that, you know, uh, I think one of the aspects that is, is often underestimated, and Aiden hasn't lived through it, uh, you know, it's, to, to his uh, credit, you know, the moment you raise a lot of capital, you're, you're bound to be hiring a, a bigger staff, move into bigger offices, you know, have more supplier relationships, et cetera, et cetera and so forth. And you know, if you think about it, you know the the team here at Hazel has stayed very small. And what it is, has allowed uh, to happen is that Aiden still is in client conversations every day. Aiden is still in the lab every day, driving science. Aiden is you know so close to all the touch points that the organization has that you know the pivot that you described earlier from going after the retail market to recognizing this is the wrong strategy, we've got to do something else, all the way to oh, we have this client iteration and the product turned out to be not quite right because they didn't give us the right, right requirements. If you have a big staff that's between you and all of these issues, everything moves slowly and you might not even recognize some of these issues. And if you have a lot of money in the bank, you might write out some of these problems because you think, ah, we just got to push a little bit longer. You don't have the sensitivity to, oh, we got to get this, this answer right uh, within the next six months. And so that's kept us as a, or it's kept Hazel so effective in finding these answers uh, and you can easily see how, how too much money can poison that you know, entrepreneurial dynamic at the beginning. And then later stage, when you have everything figured out and all you need to do is you know, produce more and set up more sales offices and hire salespeople and they know what they need to sell and the marketing needs to know, knows what they need to do, et cetera. Well, then it's a whole different game uh, in terms of, of capital requirements and how you can make that effective. Yeah, I can actually, I can actually add a, a really interesting empirical note to Karsten's point there, there was an article that came out in TechCrunch recently that focused on <clears throat> why startups fail on a frequent basis, why capital-heavy startups fail. And the argument goes like this. Let's say you, you raised a bunch of capital and you use that to go out and you hire a sales rock star. And if you look at your burn, 
uh, let's say that rock star needs to be bringing in $500,000 in sales a year in order to justify the expense that he's doing and, and to actually bring money into the company. So let's say that that rock star, because of your, your inability to, to rapidly scale the way that you thought you were, let's say you can only bring in 200,000 a year. Well, here's the problem, right? You can't get rid of him. You have to keep paying him because you need that 200,000. You need it on your books. You need it to be able to prove that you've got revenue growth. You need to be bringing in some money but he's not actually earning enough to match the, the scale strategy that you thought you had. And if you repeat that multiple times within the same organization, there's a, a burn gap that can never be filled. You, you really can't get to a point where you're going to fix that problem until you raise more money. But as what Carson just said is once you raise more money, now the expectations are different. So capital does not come with no strings attached. The only money that really comes with no uh, exterior strings attached to it is, is customer money, is revenue. And that's how we chose to pay for the majority of what we're doing right now. So if you can't get your revenue up fast enough, then you're not ready to scale faster. That's, that's what we think right now. Fantastic. Um, Carson, quick question for you. Um, you know, we, we talked, we, we heard about some of the success factors or the factors that led to the success of, of Hazel. From, from your perspective, from Rapticity's perspective, are there any other factors about um, Hazel, the team, the, the approach that they took that also contributed to their success? Yeah, I think maybe extending on what we just talked about, you know, the small team, and in this case, kind of the, the full founder team that they had, where they immediately, as, as a group, fulfilled all roles, but worked also very intimately. You know, it's a, it's a close-knit group. It's a group of friends. They've known each other for a long time. And the informality and the speed at which there's iterations to inputs to decisions I think that's that's what you need at the beginning, right? Uh, if you have a group that's just put together, they don't know each other, there's a, just like we just illustrated, there's this new VP of sales who's new to the company and, and you know, he wants to make it a success on that side, but doesn't speak back to the, the rest of the team on some of the issues he's facing. You know, you can have a lot of delays and a lot of inefficiencies. So I think keeping the team uh, intimate and, and tight at the beginning and everybody willing to do essentially every role uh, you know, I've, I, every time I come into their offices, you know, uh, the founders are basically schlepping like a big fridge or something like that. You know, there's nothing delegated out uh, to third parties. And I think that's a recipe for success at the beginning. Eventually, you want to scale out of that, um, but, but not at the beginning. Uh, so I think that's been crucial here. You know, this close-knit group, uh, IP, you know, we've spoken only a little bit uh, tangentially, but the team immediately had a, uh, you know, Amy as a, as a co-founder in the team, that's doing all the IP prosecution and having that so intimately involved rather than, you know, just an outside, we also have outside legal counsel on it, but having this a main function of the initial founder team, I think is also, you know, it's, those are all this, those components that come together on it. Yeah, I would, I would add just one small point to that, which is um, a point that I've made before in other conversations. One of the most important skills that I think we developed as a group was the ability to make good, but not necessarily 100% uh, risk averse decisions on imperfect information. Yeah. So there's a, a very different strategy at higher levels of business where there's much more capital on the line, or if you're in a Monsanto type company or, or General Mills or what have you, the risk profile is radically different than what you must be willing to accept in order to be able to, to enter the business quickly. Mm -hmm. So if you have this attitude that we're, we're going to ensure at all times that we have perfect information and therefore we'll never make a wrong decision. You don't belong in early stage startups. 
What you need to be able to do is to make a good call every time when you only have 60 or 80% of the total information out there. And you, you hedge your bet and you limit your blast radius according to uh, whatever level of conservative strategy you have to do. But at the end of the day, you still have to pull the trigger on something. And that's, that's a philosophy that has, we've put that to the test, I don't know, a hundred times in three years. And I, I think part of that, and, and, and that's maybe the, the most important thing to say about your recipes for success here, the hustle. You know, the hustle that this team has had uh, in, in wanting to attack many of these issues, right? The more you do, the more things you try, the more feedback you're going to have, the more you're going to learn, the more decisions you can make and, and uh, optimize. And, you know, just the sheer hustle is, is definitely a key ingredient to the success that Hazel has had. And, and on the individual level, you know, the amount of time, how much are you uh, uh, out of the office, uh, Aiden, out on the road? Like, you know, uh, half the year at least or something, right? Oh, I mean, it's been a little bit less this year because I, we've switched some of my focus towards the, the R&D, yeah. But like, I know last year I spent at least half the year traveling. Yeah. Aiden, one last question to wrap up. What was the most important lesson that you learned in the journey so far and maybe related to that? What's one thing you'd do differently if you'd do it over again? Hmm. Oh, let's have to boil it down to just the one. Okay. <clears throat> um, I would say that the, I'm gonna, I'm gonna phrase it like this. The thing that I find different about being in a startup than any other context I've been in, and I've worked corporate gigs and I've been in academia um, and now I'm in a startup, so I've really kind of touched most of the elements of, you know, I haven't been a consultant, but I'm about as, as experienced as it gets in the different elements of business. The thing that's different and necessary in a startup is that um, you have no safety net whatsoever. And so if you don't take personal responsibility for every task, then you fail, straight up. Um, and that applies to every person in any startup from top to bottom, even, even when you get to the point where you're hiring employees, it becomes necessary to incentivize them to think the same way. If you stiff your employees on their paychecks or you're too stingy with stock or what have you, they don't have enough value creation in their life to want to have the same level of responsibility for things within that business. So you, you're juggling all the time and you can't drop any balls and it changes the way you behave because now you, don't think about things in terms of working hours. You think about if it needs to get done, I'd better find a Home Depot that's open at 1 a.m. so I can go get it so we can do this tomorrow. I mean, I've run reactions until four o'clock in the morning because we have customers that have to run. It's not necessarily scalable at all times. You're always moving towards a state of better optimization, but particularly in the early stages, if you don't do it, it doesn't get done, period. Um, so that's a philosophy that I've found absolutely critical to survival and I know that I've instilled that in every other member of the Hazel executive team and I'm attempting to instill that in every single member uh, of the company that we ever hire uh, is that every single thing is every single person's responsibility all of the time. Um, you wear as many hats as you need to wear. If you don't know how to do something, you fucking get on Google and look it up and then you do it. And that's that you can't succeed any other way. I don't know another way to succeed. Um, if I were to think of ways to do things a little differently, uh, you know, I think it's a messed up question. I'm gonna tell you why, <laughs> because, um, if I let, let, there's two scenarios, right? If you were asking me if I went back in time to three year ago, Aiden, uh, and, um, 
I still had, don't have any of the experience that I have and I don't have the acumen that I have and I don't have the credentials that I've developed in the last few years, then I have to make choices as a first-time entrepreneur, right? But if you're talking about me now, the world perceives first-time entrepreneurs and second-time entrepreneurs radically different. So it's very different for me to now go to financers or to go to partners and say, look, I've successfully done all this stuff. Uh, that company did this. I'm doing a new one. Uh, you should give me more money or you should give me faster access or whatever it is. So there's an advantage to that that is incumbent in that question that really I don't think is fair to a first-time entrepreneur at all. Um, I would say that uh, probably worrying a little less about the, the absolute bottom line uh, when it comes to investment negotiations. Uh, I think early on in our process, and admittedly, we did see a lot of iffy term sheets from a lot of iffy people. And so I'm not, I'm not upset that they're not involved in my company. I'm very glad they're not part of it. But not being, or being less, uh, less hesitant to ask for more for what we needed and being willing to give a little bit more uh, in return, I think that might have accelerated things faster and that might have been a good decision on our part. So we've always stayed very economically focused and we're all very, very happy with the, the economic scenario that we've created for ourselves so far in terms of wealth creation. But uh, at the same time, I think there were opportunities along the way where we could have been easier to negotiate with and that might have helped. So I would say those are probably uh, the two things. Awesome. Well, I wanna thank you very much. I wanna thank you both uh, very much for your time and everything that you shared with us today. Um, I'm very inspired by the problem that you're tackling, um, how you're tackling it, very impressive. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep an eye on Hazel. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. You've probably eaten some produce already that's, that's been touched by Hazel, so. so that's, you, true. that's true, that's true. You, you probably won't see our product because it's in the bulk pack, but uh, we're, we're doing our best. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you both so much. Great Thank to be you. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye.